on an internet full of amusing and entertaining videos, some of my favorite ones are of children opening presents. Uh, I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's usually for a kid's birthday or for Christmas, and uh, the video starts, and you can basically hear the, the parent just, you know, grin on the other side, waiting to surprise this child. The child is, is waiting expectantly, okay, can I open it now? And then it happens. They usually don't open the whole, you know, they don't do the whole wrapping paper. They just scratch off enough for the puppy or the game or the, you know, whatever it is to become visible, the doll or the toy. And they, they literally start, you know, jumping up and down. They're just so excited. They're, they're bouncing off all of the furniture, rejoicing in the good gift. Or sometimes, I think these ones are equally amusing, you know, the kids just, their jaw drops, right? And they just start crying. Uh, I, I think those are equally amusing. The, the lesson, I think, is that the greater the gift, the greater the response. For the children who have waited weeks and months for the day to finally arrive, a subdued response just wouldn't do. Uh, the magnitude and magnificence of the gift produces an equally magnificent rejoicing. Uh, that's the same principle we're going to see this morning in our passage in Colossians 1. So let me encourage you to turn there now. Zach will still hand you a scripture journal if you don't have one. Um, he's getting paid a lot of money for this, so make, him, make sure he, he works for it. We're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Colossians was written around 60 AD uh, to a city in West Asia Minor, what's now present-day Turkey. Paul had, had never been to the city. Instead, he didn't found that church. Instead, that honor belonged to Epaphras, who we'll read about in our passage. It's likely that when Paul was preaching in Ephesus a few years prior, Epaphras had been converted under Paul's preaching and teaching ministry. Paul was there for three years. And then had brought the gospel back to Colossae. Uh, multiple times in the letter, Paul mentions he's in chains for the gospel. He's in prison. We don't know which imprisonment of Paul's this is, uh, but it's likely his Roman imprisonment at the end of his life, which we read about in the book of Acts. This situation that caused Paul to write uh, seems to be Epaphras' visit and um, just kind of an update on how things are going in Colossae. And like any church, there are good things and there are causes for concern. Uh, there's a particular false teaching that we'll see over the course of the next 13 weeks that Paul addresses. Uh, so it's with all that in mind that we come to Colossians 1, verses 1 to 8. We'll have two sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because of God's grace, Christians respond in faith, hope, and love. Because of God's grace, Christians respond in faith, hope, and love. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love 
that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 2, entitled, God's Gift. Uh, We see that there are two authors behind this letter. The primary one is the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament. Uh, He was unique among the 12 apostles because he didn't follow Jesus for three years during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, Instead, at that time, Paul was a zealous and -and up-and-coming Pharisee. So he belonged to the, one of the strictest parties in ancient Judaism that was known for their, their zeal for, for prosecuting and persecuting those who, who didn't follow their interpretation of the law, and for their punctiliar obedience in all of God's commands. So, so far from following Jesus, the Pharisees were known for opposing Jesus. And that's the party that Paul belonged to. And thus it was that after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, that Saul, as as Paul was then known, set himself to persecuting the new movement of Jesus' followers. Far from following Jesus, Paul violently opposed Jesus and Jesus' followers, even approving of the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We read about that in Acts chapter 7. It's likely... Perhaps because of this murderous history that Paul is so known as the the apostle of grace. Uh, Of course, all the apostles preach the message of grace. But I think perhaps because of Paul's own history, it was so so prominent in his own ministry. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, referring to himself, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. In short, Paul was a sinner saved by grace, just like you and me. What does it mean, according to verse 1, that Paul is an apostle? Well, again, the 12 apostles were, were 12 men who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus. They had been specifically commissioned by King Jesus to make disciples of all nations through their preaching and teaching and prayer and evangelism, their church planting and their church revitalizing efforts. Uh, They were to be Christ's ambassadors on earth. They were Jesus' spokesmen. Um, You see, that's why Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Do you see that in verse 1? Paul didn't appoint himself to this office. He's not a self-made man. No, God has called him to it. And so he has God's authority on him uh, when he speaks to the church in Colossae. And then, of course, we read that there's Paul's assistant and right-hand man, Timothy, our brother. These are the two authors of Colossians. And then in verse 2, we get the two main description of these Christians. We read to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 
For these believers, Paul wants to remind them uh, and us of two fundamental qualities that they possess because they are in Christ. First, they're saints. Uh, this is, I, I didn't realize how prominent it was, but Paul also addresses the Christians as saints in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Philippians when he begins each of those letters. It's really prominent that he addresses the saints in Rome, the saints in Colossae, the saints in wherever. Uh, because, friends, the fact is that if you are in Christ, the most important thing about you is that you are a saint. That is your fundamental identity. The word saint means set apart or made holy or sanctified or saintified. That's how we get the word saint. Sanctified saint. We're set apart. So now we have been made holy, set apart for God. Yet this, this doesn't mean we're, we're perfect, right? Uh, any Christian knows that until we make it home to glory, we will struggle with sin. Uh, Martin Luther said we are simul just et peccator. We are simultaneously just, righteous, and sinners at the same time. That's the gospel. That though we're sinners, we're saints. And so Christian, be encouraged. Your sin doesn't define you. Your sin is not the most important thing about you. When God sees you, he doesn't see Mark's sin. He doesn't see sinner. He sees saint because of the work of Christ. Not by works, but by the righteousness of another. By Jesus' righteousness are we accounted as righteous and sanctified. So in the New Testament, we are all who have believed in Christ, who have been united to Christ, we're saints. So in the New Testament, there is no special class of Christians, no elite special forces of Christianity, as it were. Uh, we're all saints because we've all received mercy. So I do have to say, I think it's unhelpful when certain Christian traditions refer to certain people in Christian history as saint so-and-so. I think it obscures the fact that whether it's St. Paul or St. Augustine or St. Mother Teresa or whomever it is, man, we are all in need of grace. We all need God's mercy and righteousness applied to us. And so there's just not like a, a varsity, junior varsity squad in the church. There's not two levels. Uh, but by the work of Christ, we are all saints. Friends, you can have the assurance of God's love and favor and eternal life that you are a saint, not by doing miraculous works, but by believing upon God's Son. And then the second fundamental identity that Paul wants to remind these Christians of is that they are brothers and sisters. Uh, the word can be translated both ways, brothers and sisters. Like if I say, like, hey, you guys, why don't you come over for dinner? It's referring to the group of brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. If Jesus saves you, when Jesus saves you, not only in that moment does God become your father, but you get lots of brothers and sisters. So friends, the church is not like a family. The church is a family. It is God's family. 
It is those whom God has adopted, and now we are brothers and sisters. That's why there's no, again, room for pride in the church. There's no kind of dual status. We all get in under one rule, grace. Even Timothy, who is Paul's right-hand man, did you notice he's called the brother? It's no insult to call Timothy a brother. No, and these were faithful brothers and sisters. Whatever God had entrusted to them, uh, they were stewarding it well, whether in parenting or discipling, whether in great suffering or great riches, in evangelizing in prayer and serving the church throughout the Christian life. You and I are called to faithfulness. Now, brothers and sisters, what does that look like in your life? What has God called you to steward in this season? Uh, maybe it's relational kind of lack. You're saying, Laura, I just want friends. Uh, maybe it's financial uncertainty. Laura, I, I just, I don't need to be rich. I just would like Maybe it's with lots of money. Maybe it's with lots of friends. Uh, maybe it's great health or poor health. It could be any number of things. But whatever God has given to you, whatever kind of situation and season you're in, God calls you to be faithful, uh, to serve him in it. These are the two authors behind the book of Colossians. These are the two ways that Paul describes these Christians. And now we see the two ways, the two foundational ways that God relates to these Christians in verse 2. We read, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Again, I didn't know before this sermon, but Paul begins every single one of his letters with these words. Grace to you and peace. Paul begins with these words because they're so important. So first, Paul reminds these Christians that they receive grace from God. The word grace means unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. Uh, the root for the word, uh, charis, is, it's related to the word gift in Greek. And, and this is, right, this is kind of the essence of salvation. This is the marrow. This is what you need to understand about Christ and Christianity, that it is a gift. God is under no obligation to give us grace because that's the very definition of grace. It is his gift. We don't deserve it, nor could we earn it, and yet he gives it. And then second, Paul reminds these Christians that they have peace from God the Father. This is certainly including the, the peace that we've sung about uh, the peace of bringing our cares and anxieties to God, a kind of subjective sense of God's presence and favor that now God is our Father. Uh, we don't have to be worried or anxious about the future because our biggest problem, our sin and our guilt, has been taken care of. Now God is looking out for us. He's our Father. And yet even more fundamental than the subjective peace that we enjoy as Christians is the objective peace we have with God. It's what we read about earlier in Romans 5.1. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, it's really important that you understand 
that you do not naturally have peace with God. We were not born with peace with God. Adam and Eve had that. And then ever since the Garden of Eden, when they fell into sin, we have been at war with God. That's how the Bible describes our sin. We are in rebellion against God's kingship and his rule in our lives. We are rebels and we are traitors. God says, I'm the king, and we say, I don't want you to be the king. I want to be the king of my life, the queen of my life. I want to rule. Because of that war, well, we have no peace. Isaiah 57, 21 says, there is no peace with God for the wicked. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Your sin makes you at war with God. And so how does God get us from a status of, of alienation and war to peace? Well, just look down a few verses at Colossians 1.20. We read that God has made peace by the blood of his cross. You see, our peace came at the expense of his life. Christ has bought our peace with his own blood. For on the cross, our peace is made as our sin is covered, God's wrath is appeased, and our debt is paid. It is Christ's cross which brings us peace. And so Christian, be encouraged this morning that because of the work of Christ, your biggest problem has now been solved. By grace, you now have peace. Let's turn now to our second point, found in verses 3 to 8, entitled, Our Response. In light of God giving us grace and peace, how should we respond? Uh, this is one long run-on sentence in Greek, so it's a little bit tricky to, to chop it up, but, but we'll try. Notice verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It's really interesting. Paul is about to praise the faith and hope and love that these Colossian Christians are displaying. He's going to commend them and their example and what Epaphras has told to him about them. And so you might expect him to say, man, thank you guys for being stellar Christians. Thank you guys for your example. But who does Paul thank? What does it say? Paul thanks God for the lives of these Colossian Christians, for how they're living the Christian life. You see, Paul knows that God is the ultimate source and cause of growth and godliness in the Christian life. Any good fruit that we bear, any evidence of the Spirit's work, any walking in righteousness, any putting sin to death is the result of God being at work in your life. That's why Paul thanks God, right? So if we have you over for dinner tonight um, and you bring Bedford Farms, you, you break in their clothes, you, you break in and you, you snatch a, a gallon of it or maybe two and you bring it over for dinner and then I say to Allie, my daughter, hey girl, thanks for getting the ice cream tonight. You'd be like, no, 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 Scott, you're confused. I brought the ice cream. Don't give her the credit for what she hasn't done. Why does Paul give credit to God? Because God is at work 
in the Colossians' lives and hearts. That's why he praises and thanks God. What does he thank God for? Well, we see it in verses 4 and 5. We always thank God since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. These are traditionally known as the theological virtues. So the ancients had the the moral virtues. They had the intellectual virtues. And the theological virtues are kind of a, a summary of what it means to grow in the Christian life. To speak of faith and hope and love is to speak in shorthand of the way that we are to respond to God. Uh, what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus. It, it's a great way you can pray for yourself, you can pray for others. You've got to pray that so-and-so would grow in faith. I pray that she would grow in love. I pray that she would grow in hope. First, we see that Paul mentions faith in Christ. You see, this is the the first and primary way that we respond to God's call in the gospel. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we no longer walk by sight, but by faith. Faith means taking God at his word, believing his word. Faith is described as a gift of God in Philippians 1.29, when Paul writes, For it has been graciously given to you that you believe in him. And so what Paul commends here is not just, you know, faith in general, a generic attitude of optimism and belief that things will, you know, they'll they'll probably turn out all right. Uh, No, Paul commends in particular their faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is the faith that we read about earlier. Dave led us in from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Biblical faith is not just a notion and an understanding that Jesus existed, right? Even the Pharisees who opposed Jesus believed that he existed. Or as James puts it, even the demons believe that God is real and they tremble. So mere intellectual assent is not what Paul is getting at. Uh, Rather, faith is trust. It's an active relying upon someone to do and be what they've spoken. And so faith in Christ is a miracle. It's a miracle because it is a turning away from self-reliance and turning towards Christ and trusting in his work for us. I've used this story before, and I'll probably just keep using it. So as long as you're here, you're probably going to hear it a lot. I just think it's like the perfect illustration of faith. Uh, In 1859, the acrobat Charles Blondin wowed audiences by walking over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He did it multiple times over the course of a few weeks. Um, He did it blindfolded. He did it on stilts. He did it to the amazement of crowds, right? I mean, you can can imagine, right? Before television, before internet, wouldn't you travel to go see that? And then he... One time, he, he pushed a wheelbarrow across and back. And, you know, the crowd goes nuts. And then he says, all right, now who thinks I can push someone in this wheelbarrow across to the other side? And the crowd is in a frenzy. Yes, yes, we think you can. 
All right, who wants to get in? And it goes silent. There's the rub, isn't it? There's a kind of head knowledge, and then there's an actual depending. A a faith that leads to action. Trust that is evident by its consequences. Uh, Brothers and sisters, praise God that we are not saved by the strength of our faith. Right? So it's not that, that we need to have the strongest, perfect, never doubting faith. That's great if you have that. Uh, but it is that we must have the faith to, to get in the wheelbarrow, as it were. Right? So on, on this side of Niagara Falls is, is sin and death and destruction. Jesus says, I'll take you to the other side, to safety and eternal life. If you get in and you jump in, you're like, man, Jesus got this. Great. He's going to take you to the other side. If you get in with trepidation and fear and doubt, well, praise God. It is not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would trust in Christ to pay for your sins, to raise you up to newness of life, he will surely do it. This belief in Jesus is uh, to mark our initial coming to faith, But of course, it's also to mark the rest of our Christian life. We don't graduate from trusting in Christ. We rather seek to grow and deepen in our faith. Second, we notice at the end of verse 4 that Paul thanks God for the love that you have for all the saints. So notice, to the saints at Colossae, Paul praises their love for the saints. Paul commends the saints' love for the saints. I wonder if this sounds insular or narrow to you. I mean, shouldn't Christians love everybody? Why why is Paul concerned about the love that they have for each other? Well, of course, Christians should love everyone. But just as you, Christian, are called to, to love all people, but are especially called to love and serve your family, Well, so it's right that you love and serve all people, but you especially love and serve your spiritual family. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. As we've considered, when Christ reconciles us to God, he also reconciles us to one another. We're not supposed to merely tolerate our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love them. We should love all the saints, even the difficult to love ones, because of Christ and the gospel. What does it mean to love the saints? Like, what does that look like? I think practically it means we should love being with them. We should love talking with them. We love praying with them and for them. We should love rejoicing with them. We should be glad to weep with them. So Trinity Church of Bedford, whether it's discussing sports and the weather or what the Lord has been teaching you in your devotions, You love to be with the saints. Do you delight to spend time with your brothers and sisters? Are you glad to serve them? I think a a good biblical shorthand for love, um, I think culture says love is is emotional sentiment, right? I I think a good biblical shorthand would be for love is affection, Leading to action. 
affection leading to action. Whether introverts or extroverts, old or young, new to the faith or seasoned, we are called to have an affectionate regard for one another, which leads to sacrificial service. And so let me just say, uh, here at Trinity, what a joy it has been to see all of you doing this. I am so thankful for how the Cartons brought us a meal two weeks ago when they heard we were sick. Um, I praise God for how David Barnes picked up the childs when their car broke down on the side of the road. Nick, I praise God for how you set up the sound every week tirelessly for the glory of God and for your love for the saints. Dad, I'm so thankful for you breaking down the sound system most weeks. Ryan, I thank God for you when I pray for you, for what an amazing job you do organizing fellowship events and events for people to just have fellowship and get together. Uh, Taylors, I am so thankful for how you guys make the drive to worship with us and pray with us. And what an encouragement it is to us. Uh, brothers and sisters, I am so thankful for when, when this service ends, how like nobody leaves the building. Service ends, and you guys just love to chat. I think that's great. I think it's a wonderful witness and testimony that we're not just individuals showing up to get our spiritual kick for the week, uh, but we want to be with God's people uh, because we love them. Let's continue in this, you know, because this love for the saints is really important. Number one, it it should serve uh, as a kind kind of litmus test for our own spiritual life. 1 John 3, 14 states, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So, so there is a kind of love that we have that confirms our belonging in Christ. Uh, Psalm 16, 3 states, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. I can remember when, when I became a Christian, um, I, I didn't dislike Christians before that. I didn't not you know, I didn't have anything against Christians before that, but there was just, you know, something, I just wanted to be with my brothers and sisters. Something about their, their speech and their example. Something about their, their conduct and what they talked about and prayed about. And I, I got to know God more through them. And I just wanted to be with them. I, I hope that's true for you as well. I hope you can look at your own love for other Christians and the Lord encourage your hearts because of that. That yes, indeed, I have passed from death into life. And and then second, this love that we have for one another is really important because Jesus states in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is not just talking about generic love that Christians have for all people. Again, of course we should have that. But he says it's your love for one another that people will know you're my disciples. So brothers and sisters, as this church grows, let's not be complacent in our love. Let us dig down deep, loving the saints because of the love that we have shown. If we want the witness of this church to be compelling and attractive, let's continue serving one another, outdoing one another in honor, having an affectionate regard for each other. And then the third virtue that Paul praises God for is found in verse 5. Look there. Paul, thanks, God, for the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That that first word in verse 5 is so important. Why do the Colossian Christians love one another? Because of their hope 
in heaven. So in the New Testament, the language of hope is almost always applied to Jesus' second coming or heaven. Sometimes it's referred to kind of subjectively, so it's this, this attitude that we have, we hope, we, we long, we eagerly await the return of Christ. But then it's in our passage, we see the object of our hope. In our passage here, the, the hope laid up for you in heaven refers to the object of our longing and desiring. As we considered in our series in Malachi, the return of Christ will be glorious and amazing for the believer. All our deferred hopes and dreams will come true. When Paul refers to this hope laid up for you in heaven, he's talking about the totality of blessing and joy that awaits the Christian. Uh, We read about some of this in Isaiah 55. The, The thorn and the briar being turned into the beautiful tree of delight and pleasure. Uh, We read in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul refers to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison with this light momentary affliction. Or consider, just just listen and, and just picture in your mind's eye to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. This is what awaits the believer. This is our hope. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that day is coming. For the believer, we long for and look forward to the day when Christ will return. The challenge, of course, that we face is that we don't know when it's going to happen, right? Because if I told you, hey, I'm going to give you a billion dollars tomorrow, my guess is you'd be pretty stoked. But then if I said, hey, it's actually going to be next week, or I'm going to give you a billion dollars next year, well, it might be harder to have joy today because of the uncertainty and the delay of the reward to come. You see, our hopes rise in proportion to the excellency and the certainty of our hope. Our hopes rise in proportion to the excellency and certainty of our hope. So, for example, winning the Powerball would be excellent. It's just not that certain. Like, we're really, really uncertain. Taxes, on the other hand, are really certain. They're just not that excellent. They don't arouse our hopes and desires either any more than the Powerball. But beloved, the hope of Christ's return is both the most excellent thing and totally sure, totally secure. It's impossible to have your hopes too high for that. You know, again, if you play the Powerball, your hopes are probably too high. You're just not going to win. For the Bruins, you know, they're awesome. They might win the cup this year. They're amazing. But look, winning the Stanley Cup, it is what it is. And they might go out in the first round. 
Don't, you, don't set your hopes too high on the Bruins. But it is impossible to set your hopes too high on the return of Christ. You will not overestimate how great it is. We, we can only underestimate how amazing it will be. Brothers and sisters, I said this two weeks ago, and I'm happy to say it again because sometimes the Bible is repetitive like that. Our lives shouldn't make sense apart from the reality of heaven. Our lives shouldn't make sense apart from the reality of heaven. In particular, we should sacrificially serve the saints so much, love them so much, because of our hope of heaven. For these Colossian Christians, where did they learn about this blessed hope? We kind of turn to the second half of Paul's opening words there in the second half of verse 5. And we read, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Uh, what does the word gospel mean? We, we throw it around a lot here at Trinity. Uh, simply put, it, it means good news. You, good. Angelos means uh, news. And so Christians use it, the good news, the gospel, to refer to the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And what's so great about this news is that it is the word of truth. The reason that's important is because typically, the better the news, the more likely it is to be false, right? That's why we have the phrase, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So your, your spouse might say to you, good news, I got the stain out of your shirt. All right, that's nice. Uh, your boss might say, good news, you've gotten a big promotion. That's great. Or you might see the advertisement on the web. Good news. Massachusetts will pay off your entire home mortgage. Well, we know that good news really is too good to be true. And so what's so amazing about the good news of Christianity is that it is the greatest news conceived that we could have our sins forgiven and enter into God's family and inherit that new heavens and new earth. And it ain't too, true, too good to be true. No, it is totally true. You can bank your life on it. That's what Jesus did. It is totally true. This gospel, verse 6 states, is the same one which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Uh, you see, this gospel isn't a provincial gospel. It's not limited to first century Asia Minor. It's not just for Greek speakers of a pagan background. It's not just for people in Bedford. It's for people all over the world. The good news of God's kingdom is like a mustard seed, which starts out so small and yet grows as more and more people come to rejoice in the king. Brothers and sisters, today it bears fruit and increases all over the place, from Baghdad to Bangkok, from Perth to Prague, from Massachusetts to Malawi, and we praise God for it. We pray for it. Uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the one. Did you notice in verse 6 that goes out and bears fruit? The gospel bears fruit all over the globe, wherever it goes, because Isaiah 55 is true, that God's word accomplishes the purpose for which he sends it. 
So let me just kind of give you the, the secret of our strategy here at Trinity Church of Bedford. Uh, we understand that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Sometimes it lands on, on you know, hard or rocky or thorny soil, and, and it doesn't bear as much fruit as we wish. And yet, our desire is to unleash the gospel in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, in our community, even to the four corners of the globe, because we know it will do exactly what God wants it to do. Just as a tiny seed has all the DNA for growth and maturity and fruitfulness, so the gospel is the seed of all healthy Christians and marriages and families and churches. Uh, so put another way, the gospel is not like solar panels. It's not like solar panels. You know, give it some energy, put it in the right spot, and it will do great things for you. No, the gospel is more like the sun. It gives the energy and the growth and the life to all things. And because the center of this gospel is something we've already considered this morning, you see it there at the end of verse 6. It refers to the grace of God in truth. This is Paul's summary of the gospel here. The grace of God. This is what makes Christianity unique and different from every other world religion. So I, I'll often be, be talking to people, and I think in their desire to be sincere and sweet and affirming of me, they'll say something to the effect of, oh yeah, you know, Christianity is great. It's just like, I'm like all religions are great. They're all the same. Well, that's just good evidence that they haven't actually investigated Christianity. Because what makes Christianity different is grace. Every other world religion says, look, do these good things, and you'll get this good result. Pray five times a day pray the mass, go to Mecca, do, get good karma, whatever it is, and you will go to paradise or heaven or get good karma or get reincarnated. Whatever it is, you earn a good result. But Christianity says, no way. We're way too sinful for that. God is so holy and I am so sinful that there's no way I could possibly do enough good works to earn God's favor. The salvation could never be on the basis of my works, but only upon God's grace. This is what makes Christianity different than every other world religion. Uh, so Christians, you're seeking to evangelize. This is sometimes a, a really good kind of hook with people. Uh, like, let me tell you what I think is different about Christianity, what is unique about Christ. This is the way that God set it up because this is the way that God gets the glory. You see, when you work for something, you get the praise. If you work hard and you win the trial, you get named partner at the law firm. Uh, if you work hard and you get good grades, you get named to the honor roll. You get the honor. So if salvation was by our works, if we could earn salvation, then we would get the glory. But the whole reason that God has made salvation to be a gift is that God, the gift giver, would get the glory. To return to our opening illustration, you never see the child who receives the birthday gift in that moment boasting in him or herself, right? They don't open the box with the, the Xbox inside or the puppy or whatever it is and say, you know, wow, I really was amazing this year. I really am kind and hardworking and obedient. 
I'm the best. That's not what they say. No, when the child receives a gift, how do they respond? Wow, a puppy. Thank you, mom and dad. You're the best. I can't believe you gave this. Thank you. Or to use the language of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, if you would enjoy God and the gospel, remind yourself that salvation is by his grace. It is a gift. It is a gift that's free to us, but of course not so to God. It's not cheap grace because it costs God dearly and it makes radical demands upon our lives. The grace of God comes through the cross of Christ. You see, it is through Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, substituting himself on the cross, bearing our wrath in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve that brings us salvation. If you want to get in on this good news and this hope, you only need to receive his grace by trusting in Christ's finished work. That's kind of the mechanism. Okay, God's grace. Does everyone get grace? Or who? He made peace by the blood of his cross. Who gets in on that? It's those who have faith in Jesus. That's how God's grace is owned in our lives. And so we come to the last two verses of our passage. Verse 7 says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Notice that the Colossians, and you and I, we don't naturally know the gospel. We have to learn it from someone. So nobody is born a Christian. You can be born a Bostonian, you can't be born a Christian. You have to learn about the grace of God in truth. And I love the description of Epaphras. Verse 7 refers to, him, refers to him as our beloved fellow servant. That's really interesting. Beloved by whom? By, by God? Yes. Yeah, of course. But I think, I think Paul is referring to his own affection for Epaphras. In the Christian ministry, there are few things so dear as a beloved co-laborer in the gospel. Uh, so that'd be one way you can pray for myself and Mark Butman and Dave DeBond. Lord willing, as we vote on these brothers to serve as elders tonight, pray that God would grow our friendship and our affection and our love for one another. Uh, that will just be good for the gospel and for this church. Uh, second, we see that Epaphras is a fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Notice that being a minister of the gospel means you belong to Christ and you serve others. Epaphras had no claim on his own life. To enter into Christian gospel ministry is to serve others. And so our passage concludes in verse 8. Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. What an encouraging conclusion to Paul's opening words, that their love is in the Spirit. You see, we're not able to conjure up by ourselves love for other people. 
Uh, nor for that matter are we able to conjure up faith in Christ or hope in heaven. No, we must be empowered and enabled by God's Holy Spirit. Just as God the Father and God the Son exist in a fellowship of love and delight, just as they love one another in the Spirit, so to Christians love one another in the Spirit. Indeed, love is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned, the surest evidence of his presence and the greatest spiritual gift one can attain. So Trinity Church of Bedford, as individuals and as a church, we need to remember that we will go nowhere without God's Holy Spirit. Our faith will be weak, our love will be lifeless, our hope would be diminished. But if God would be pleased to pour out his grace so that his spirit washes over us, we will be a heavenly-minded people. We will trust in Christ's atoning work on the cross, and we will be marked by love. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you. We praise you that you give us grace and peace. We don't deserve either of those. And left to ourselves, we would have neither of them. We praise you for your love. We praise you for the gift of your spirit that empowers us and enables to love one another. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you'd stir up our faith in Christ, that we would trust you and trust in him. Lord, we pray that we would love the saints, have a, a real affection and regard for them. Uh, and Lord, we pray that we would think much of heaven. We pray that you'd send your son soon, that we'd be with you. And Lord, you'd help us to persevere until that day. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, what a joy.